Well, just imagine that it's a Tuesday. It's any given Tuesday. And you are confronted with one of these situations. You're late to work. The roads get icy, but you're late to work because it's not icy, and you're tempted to lie about the road conditions when you get there. Maybe your boss tells you to do something, and it's something that's going to be good for the company, it's good for the bottom line, but you know it's not right. But you also want to keep your job. Maybe someone tells you something very interesting and juicy about someone, and you really want to tell someone else. You really want to pass that information along because the other person's going to be interested in what you have to say. Maybe you're tempted to have just one more drink when you know you've probably already had enough. Or maybe you don't drink and you're just tempted to have one more piece of cake and you know you've probably had enough of that too. You decide you no longer want an item you purchased and the store won't let you just return it because you don't want it anymore, so you're tempted to fudge the lines a little bit and uh, maybe lie about the reason you're returning it. You know you have responsibilities, or you know that you told somebody you would help them, but you give in to sloth and Netflix. Or maybe you're tempted to look at a website with images you know you shouldn't be looking at. Every day, we meet various situations that require us to make decisions. And we decide what to do according to our moral framework, our ethical framework. And so today is our last one of the five questions that every worldview is going to answer. We are going to consider ethics. Now, as we think about worldview or the framework through which we make sense of the world, right? Like everyone has glasses, if you will, they put on that they make sense of what is happening around them and how to interpret things that are happening. Every worldview must answer five questions. Is there a God? If there is a God, what is he like? Remember, even atheists have to answer this question. Their answer is negative. There is no God. They are atheists, but they still have to answer this question. Why is there something instead of nothing? Where did the universe come from? Why are we here? Who is man? How do we know things? How is knowledge found? Is knowledge important? And the fifth question, the last one we get to today, are there boundaries to what we do? Are there hard lines of behavior that says we can't go any further? Ethics are the moral, moral principles that govern a person's or a group's behavior. That is the study of ethics. What are the boundaries to human conduct? As one thinker asks, is morality totally subjective, like our taste for spinach? Or is there an objective dimension to moral laws that means that truth is independent of our preferences? and independent of our desires. Are there boundaries? Does our Creator care what we do? Does He care? Well, Moeller has written that an amazingly large of Americans profess belief in God, but live like atheists. He said they live as though they have no concept of biblical discipleship. Owen Strand, in his newly released book, The Warrior Savior, wrote this. It just came out a couple of weeks ago. Quote, the idea that there is a specifically moral way to live has fallen out of favor in modern times. This is even true of the professing church. The moral truths of the Bible seem a light thing to an antinomian generation. We're going to talk about that word a little later. The follow-your-heart spirit of the age has influenced many in such a register that we feel strongly about Jesus, but live any way we like. We could say it this way, a good number of people are glad for Jesus to be their Savior, but far fewer rejoice at Jesus being their Lord, end quote. So this morning, friends, this sermon matters for us. This topic matters for us because the Bible does not teach we can profess to follow Christ and then turn and do whatever we want. Do whatever we please. Christian ethics is how we live our daily lives to the glory 
of God. So as we consider ethics, as we consider Christian ethics, we need to study the whole Bible to see how we should live. But we find the foundation of these ethics in Genesis. We find the foundation of all five of these questions in these first two chapters of Genesis. From the beginnings, friends, from the very beginning of creation, God has called man to an ethical standard. Now we are going to read this portion of Scripture one more time. I know this is the third week. It's kind of long, and we've read it three weeks in a row, but we're going to read it one more time before we move on. So if you turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Genesis chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 26. As you're turning there, it is important that we really go deep in these first two chapters before we move on but we will move on next week to chapter 3. Starting in verse 26 of the first chapter, Moses writes under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the bird of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God created them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. God also said, Look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth and every tree whose fruit contains seed. This will be food for you. For all the wildlife of the earth, for every bird of the sky, and for every creature that crawls on the earth, everything having the breath of life in it, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good indeed. Evening came, and then morning the sixth day. So the heavens and the earth and everything in them were completed. On the seventh day, God had completed his work, that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all of his work that he had done. God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy, for he rested from all of his work of creation. These are the records of the heaven and earth concerning the creation at, that, at the time that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. No shrub of the field had yet grown on the land, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord had not made it rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. But mist would come up from the earth and water all the ground. Then the Lord God formed man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils. And man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And there he placed the man he had formed. The Lord God caused to grow out of the ground every tree pleasing in appearance and good for food including the tree of life in the middle of the garden, as well as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river went out from Eden to water the garden. From there it divided and became the source of four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon, which flows through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. Gold from that land is pure. Bedlam and Onyx are also there. The name of the second river is Gihon, which flows through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris, which runs east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the garden to watch, to work it, and to watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone, and I will make a helper corresponding to him. The Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal and every bird of the sky and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. The man gave Names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, and to every wild animal. But for the man there was no helper found corresponding to him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. 
God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib that he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, At last, this one, at last, is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. This is the word of the Lord. Father, thank you for your word, that we might know who you are, who we are, and how we are to live. Most of all, that we might know Christ. God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see, illuminate your scripture to us, help us to understand. Guard my mouth and these people's ears. God, may your truth reign in their hearts this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. In this passage, we find four requirements given to Adam. Adam was called to be fruitful. He was called to supervise the garden. He was called to abstain from one tree. And he was called to be faithful to his wife. From the beginning, God called man to an ethical standard. First, he was called to be fruitful. Look at verse 28 of chapter 1. God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. So from the beginning, one of the purposes of marriage was procreation, to make children. Men and women are called to be fruitful, to multiply, to to fill the earth. Be fruitful means have kids. Now we live in a time when some are intentionally seeking to be childless. Now I want to say with that that we can have discussions about how many kids a Christian can have. That's a different discussion for another day. How many kids should you have? And there are certainly heartbreaking cases of, of brothers and sisters that desire to have kids and cannot. I'm not talking about either one of those two situations. I'm addressing and thinking about here those who purposefully choose not to have children for financial prosperity. That is against what this command to Adam is. Christians deciding not to have children because it intrudes on their lifestyle do not understand the foundational reason God gave us and created us, male and female. Reproduction. He's calling Adam, have children. And I'm going to sidestep the argument, not because I don't want to get into it, but because we're thinking about the requirements of Adam this morning, specifically not just having children, but the, the argument of underpopulation versus overpopulation. But I will say, just as a side note here, that when we live in a society that's not even reproducing itself, we are tending more towards underpopulation than over. Whatever you think about family size, whatever your feelings are on the current political arguments, we have to say that from the very beginning, mankind is called to be fruitful. Adam's command called to be fruitful, to have children. He is called to multiply But Adam is also called to oversee. Look at me at verse 215, and we'll see that Adam was called to supervise the garden. The Lord took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to watch over it. So God takes Adam, the man, and he places him in the middle of this garden that he has created for a specific purpose, and he tells Adam, work. Oversee, watch, supervise, protect this garden. He is given a task in the beginning. Now we know that work itself is not the result of sin. We're going to see next week as we think about the fall. But painful labor and toil are. But work itself is not the result of sin. From the beginning, man was created to multiply, but man was also created to do. He was created for a purpose. He had a purposeful existence in the universe. And when we look at Christians who shirk duty, who, who, who shirk their biblical calling because doing that is not easy, we see that from the beginning they are going against our design, how we were designed to do. 
right? It is not easy to conduct church discipline, is it? It is not easy to tell people you are not qualified to do this ministry. We think of the female pastors that we were having to deal with this week. It is easy to be egalitarian in an egalitarian world. But what we see is, is Adam was called to a purpose. He was called to do something, and he failed to do it. He is called to a role, a role he failed to fulfill. Christian, you are called to a role as well. And as we think about ethics, we think about the fact that men and women are called to a role. So whatever your role, whether it be leading your family, supporting your husband, raising your children, leading in the church, serving as a deacon, whatever you are called to do, do it to the glory of God and to do it faithfully. Adam was called to multiply. He was called to supervise. He was called to guard. And he was called to abstain. The third thing we see in this passage, when we think about ethics, is Adam was called to abstain from one tree. Look with me at verses 16 through 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge and good and evil, for on the day you eat of it, eat from it, you will certainly die. It's pretty clear. Do not eat. Do not eat from this tree, Adam. Unlike the rest of creation, right, mankind alone is given a moral boundary not to cross. Do not eat of this tree. What will Adam do? Will he obey God's words? Will he disobey God's words? Will Adam seek to do it all his way and put forth his hand and take from the tree to eat. Must not, in this passage, the strongest of terms. You must not eat. You have all of this good stuff. Look around you. You have every tree in the garden to eat from. This one, do not do it. It's forbidden. What's the consequence? You'll certainly die. Death follows disobedience to God. This is not an arbitrary command, right? Like, this isn't, and this isn't just some random thing. This isn't some random landmine that God put in the garden. This is purposeful. Will you depend on God? Or will Adam choose to do it his own way? Does he want independence from God? Because it's a clear command. Do not eat a moral boundary. A command he would not heed. As one theologian defines sin, Sin is any failure to conform to the moral law, law of God in act, attitude, or nature. Along with what we are called to do, biblical ethics also call us to abstain from things that are not good, things that do not honor God. Abstain from coveting. Abstain from adultery. Abstain from murder, from stealing. Don't do these things. If you have children... How many times do you tell a kid, don't go do that, and watch them turn and go do that very thing that you told them not to do? Well, Adam was called to abstain from that which was not good and did not honor the Lord and showed his desire for independence. But he was also called to cultivate that which is good. That which was designed by God. So the fourth thing we see in this passage when it comes to ethics is Adam was called to be faithful to his wife. He was called to be a husband to the one God had created for him. Look at verse 24. This is why a man leaves his father and his mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. So Adam is called to to leave and cleave to Eve. I don't normally try and make rhymes if you're a visitor with us today, but it just works out that way. Leave and cleave to Eve. A man and his wife are, are to leave their former family commitments and commit to one another. They're to start their own family. They are to 
have this new priority of one another where they again repeat the process and multiply and fill the earth and are fruitful. Calvin says it's not that marriage severs all family ties, but that a man should prefer his wife to his father. It's a good way to think of it. And they are to cleave, they are to cling to one another. The Hebrew word here is debak. It is the same word that we hear when Ruth uh, clings to Naomi, right? Like when, when, when her father-in-law dies and the husband dies and, and, and Naomi's going to send Ruth back and Ruth clings to her mother-in-law and says, don't send me away, I'm staying with you. It's the same word uh, when we look at Leviathan and, and Job, I believe it is, and, and they use that word to talk about Leviathan's scales were so close together, they debak together, they clung together that air couldn't pass through them. And, and, and that is the word that God uses for how a man is to be towards his wife, to cling to her, to cleave to her, to leave his other commitments and make her the priority. Friends, leaving and cleaving, marriage, and it's not a private matter. It's not something done quietly behind closed doors. It's a public declaration. I'm committed to this one woman. I'm cleaving to her and to her alone. A, a, a covenant commitment. A public commitment. And these two people, as we see in the passage, they become one flesh. One flesh. That means several things. In one sense, that means that speaks to the woman's source from the man. Remember, created from the man's rib to be by his side, as one commentator has said. It also speaks to the, uh, the, the wedding night union, if you will, of a man and a woman. And one commentator says it speaks to the fact that now a man and woman are as blood relation. Right? They are now like blood relation as they create children. It's kind of like if you're a millennial, I don't know if, I don't know if anyone's going to get this reference other than my wife. It's like that Casey and Jojo song where they say, next to me, you're like my brother. Next to me, you're like my sister, right? Like, I don't know, Keenan might remember. Okay, you remember Casey and Jojo, right? Like she is now like blood relation, right? One flesh. And this, the, this creation, this, this marriage, this, this family is how Adam is to rule. Family, friends, is God's design for the world. That is how he is to rule. One man, one woman, multiplying, building a family. That is God's design. When you look at a strong church, it has strong families. You know, in 10 years of being a Christian, whenever I look at a pastor who is just always trying to just, always against anything traditional, anything, that's not the gospel, any this kind of stuff, it seems like those are the guys that have the most shenanigans in their churches, the scandals and all that stuff. But if you look at a church where families are cultivated, where marriage is cultivated and strong and children are raised up in the nurture of admission of the Lord, you will usually see a healthy, strong church because it's God's design. We see all manner of counterfeit marriages in the Bible and in culture. But friends, polygamy is not God's design. Adultery and fornication is not God's design. And LBGBTQ is not God's design. Monogamous, heterosexual, committed covenant marriage is God's idea. And all other ideas are bad ideas that subvert God's good order. All other practices are unnatural. They are against what God has created from the beginning because God has placed proper boundaries. God has placed ethical limits around human conduct from the very beginning of creation. You say, well, I'm not sure about that. Well, let's, let's look at what God the Son says when he reminds us in Matthew 19. Have you read, he replied, he being Christ, that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female. He also said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Friends, may the church be a center of sanity 
and biblical fidelity in a world that is throwing off any semblance of morality at a surprising speed. Now there is much that could be said about these passages, and we have shot through them rather quick, but my intent and what I hope you have seen this week as we turned over chapter 2 and looked at it from a different direction, what I hope you have seen here is that from the beginning, God gave man ethical boundaries. There are boundaries to man's conduct. And as we'll see next week, Adam failed to follow God's instruction and sin entered the world. And along with sin, worldly philosophies based on the wisdom of man. And so, as has been our our tradition in these first five sermons, we want to think about those three worldly philosophies that are prominent in our culture because we don't want to, what, be taken captive by worldly philosophies based on the tradition of man rather than God that we saw in Colossians. So what are these worldly philosophies? In contrast to a biblical worldview, modernity claims that ethical standards are social creations. Ethical standards are social creations. So with modernity, there is no objective authority to a society's ethical standards. There's no hard, right, or wrong, but they're the creation of a group of people who evolved over time. So in other words, as we evolved in modernity's idea, as we evolved, we came up with rules, and those rules just became normal, and now we don't like anything that's outside of that normal. And modernity would say, well, no, that's just every society has their own normal. Postmodernity will say that no culture's value system is better than another one. So in other words, you may do it this way here, and you may do it this way here. It's all the same. It's okay. Just whatever you do there, you do you. Each person is the sole judge of their actions. The postmodern worldview claims that what's right for you is right for you, and what's right for you guys over here, well, that's right for you as well. But what's right for me, that's, that's right for me. There's no hard standard of right and wrong. And we see this mentality in media and music and literature and YouTube and all these places, right? If it feels good and it's right for you, it's okay. And this has been around for a while. This isn't just recent. I remember uh, a war movie in the 80s that I watched and probably shouldn't have been allowed to watch at that young of age. Um, there's a scene, though, where the, 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 the leader is corrupting the young, innocent private, and, and he gives him something to do, and he says, do you feel good? Because feeling good's what matters, man. Well, that's this mentality. In post-modernity, Any sexual morality is abuse. Any sexual morality is abuse. Who are you to tell me what I can and can't do with my own body? Anything goes. As one postmodern thinker named Foucault said, postmoderns should celebrate the concept of perversity. That's a quote. Celebrate the concept of a perversity. And when we think about quotes like that that have been around for a while and wonder why halftime shows are the way they are. Third, we have Marxism. Easy definition. Marxism has scorned for any type of moralizing. Any type of moralizing is scorned. And now if you think about these three prominent worldviews and how we've looked at them the last four weeks You notice that they were always a little bit different, but what do you notice here? They're all pretty much the same. That should make us think as Christians. They all pretty much look at the Bible and say, nah. There's a theme that says any ethical standard should be rejected. Modernity, post-modernity, Marxism. So how should we think as Christians? as people who love our Bibles? How should we think about ethics? Because you've heard that quotes at the beginning where Christians want to affirm Jesus but reject any morality, reject any standard of ethics. So is that correct? How should we think about it? 
Well, I have four thoughts this morning on how we as Christians should think about ethics and morality. First, we must understand, friends, that Christian ethics are shaped by the character of God. Christian ethics are shaped by the character of God. God is the source of biblical ethics. Our ethics are determined by God's character, purpose, and will. God's moral standards flow from his character. And if you struggle with that, I'll tell you, our children this morning answered the question that God is unchanging. And so ethics are unchanging. When I was a young man, I was not a believer. I would have told you I was a believer because I had been dunked as a, as a kid, but I, I lived for myself. I, I lived for the world. I didn't, I didn't live for the Lord. But in, there was a few years there when I was a late teenager and I was trying to fit into my small southern town. I ended up at gospel music camp. And I was learning to sing gospel music. And I remember this story, and it, it's a sobering memory for me. I remember it clear as day. I can picture where everyone was sitting at the table. I got asked out to lunch by three other guys. Right? There was a guy that was my age. There was a guy that was in his 30s, I think. And then there was a guy that was my granddad's age who was actually a close friend of my granddad. And that's why I'd agreed to go. And I left this gospel music school in Nashville, in the heart of Nashville, Tennessee. And we went to a Sonic And as we sat at this Sonic, the guy in his 30s started arguing to me and and trying to persuade me to the idea that God had sanctioned homosexuality. He said clear as day, and he made his argument. He was a college teacher or a high school teacher or something. He said God has sanctioned homosexuality. And I know that didn't sound right, but I couldn't answer it. And I wasn't even a believer yet. But I remember wondering why this older gentleman that was my granddad's age never said a word. And it's not the point of the story, but years later, all three of those men's lives came unraveled and the sin that underlined all under, was under all that came out. And I praise God that in his sovereignty, he protected me from that, even though I was not a believer. But my point being is there are people who believe God grows in his understanding, that God changes in his character, that things that were sin a thousand years ago are no longer sin. But friend, our standard of ethics comes from the character of God, an unchanging character. In the Old Testament, God forbade people from serving other gods. In the New Testament, God forbids people from serving other gods. And in the new heavens and new earth, it still will not be okay to serve other gods. The same thing is said of murder. The same thing could be said of lying, of coveting, of adultery. Wayne Grudem wrote that the abiding moral standards God has given in His Word will be valid for all eternity, and obeying them will give joy to our hearts and glory to God forever. If ethical standards flow from God's character, if ethical standards do not change, then they are required for the new covenant believer as well. The second thing that we should think of when it comes to ethics is that we must, as a church, embrace the truth that Christian ethics are a requirement for Christians. Objection that I commonly hear. Well, the gospel shows us that we cannot be good enough. We need Jesus. Or hasn't God already forgiven me of my sins? What difference does it make? Why do I need to follow some standards? I'm already forgiven. Or, this isn't the Old Testament anymore. It's not about the things we do. It's whether or not we're in Christ. Well, we've got to be precise here. We must be precise. In the judicial sense by which we are found righteous before a holy God, no, you cannot ever be good enough to save yourself. Please hear me there. You cannot save yourself from the condemnation that you and I rightly deserve by doing enough good things. In God's court, we are only found righteous because of Christ and Christ alone. The Bible also teaches 
that those who have received Christ's righteousness as a free gift, unmerited grace, must live faithful lives considering this good news. New hearts should not want the same old sin. I'm not saying you're not going to struggle, but you shouldn't want it. There should be repentance, daily repentance, a part of our life. Because the New Testament not only refutes legalists or those who want to earn their salvation, it also refutes antinomians. The antinomian argues that he is not subject to any moral laws. The New Testament is clear that Christians should live in obedience to God's will. And friends, this is one of the biggest pushbacks I have received in ministry because it's been taught forever and ever and ever, that at least in the last few decades, that if you just pray this prayer, you're good. But what does the Bible say? Matthew 28, 19-20. The Great Commission. Right? Baptize believers. Make disciples. I will be with you to always to the end of the age. That's it, right? Now, what's that third clause that everyone forgets? It says, teach them to obey all I have commanded you. John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 15, 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. 1 Corinthians 7, 19, Paul says that circumcision does not matter, but keeping God's commands is what matters. 1 John 2, 3-4, this is how we know we love him, if we keep his commands. Revelation 12, 17 speaks of those who keep the commands of God and hold firmly to the revelation of Jesus. The testimony of Jesus. Revelation 14, 12. Speak to those who, through endurance, keep God's commands and their faith in Christ. Romans 12, 2 and Ephesians 5, 10. Remind us that we are to discern God's will and do what is pleasing to Him. 2 Peter 1, 5. Christian, you should supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge. 1 John 5, 3. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. Friends, I say this firmly and without hesitation. Pastors who do not teach the church of Jesus Christ to obey the commands of Scripture and to walk worthy of Christ are in direct disobedience of Jesus Christ himself. The Great Commission says, go make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father and Son, and teach them to obey all I have commanded you. Do we want to know why local churches are not growing into adulthood? Why are local churches tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine? Why are are guys like Bill Johnson allowed to flourish? Why are guys like Joel Olstein allowed to flourish? Why are we struggling with who can be a pastor in the Southern Baptist Convention? We haven't been teaching doctrine, and we haven't been teaching that it's a requirement that we heed the commands of Scripture. John Frame says this, quote, The notion that we should conduct our lives completely apart from the admonitions of God's Word is a terrible notion. To ignore God's revelation of His righteousness is sinful. To read Scripture but refuse to allow its commands to influence one's conduct is the essence of sin. End quote. Friends, the New Testament, I belabored to argue this morning, the New Testament does not relieve our commitment to walking worthy. It calls for it. It calls for it. Third, realize that Christian ethics are found in the entire canon of Scripture. The entire canon, Old and New Testament. The Old Testament also teaches us about God and how we are to live in light of Him. 2 Timothy 3, 16-17 says, All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. What does Paul say here? How much of Scripture? All. Ethics flow from the character of God. God's character is unending. It is unchanging. It is in all of Scripture. 
We are not under the Old Testament law in a ceremonial sense, and we're going to learn a lot about that in Galatians at the end of the year. But it is still edifying and teaches us how we should live. Calvin calls it the third use of the law. Right? He says there's three uses of the law. One is to restrain, restrain sin in a civil society. We don't really live in a theocracy. but Two, convict unbelievers and drive them to Christ. Right? So when an unbeliever hears the law, they see how unholy they are and are driven to Christ. Third is to instruct believers in obedience. So as we study the law, when we, we read about the Old Testament law, we are to learn what God loves and what he hates. It is unchanging. How God's people should live. Studying the whole Bible brings precision and correction to our current understanding of the Christian life. Ethics help us make wise choices. As we go about our daily lives, let the Bible drive your conduct. Not culture. Do not compromise what the Bible teaches about marriage because it's unpopular and it's going to make you look like a weirdo. Do not compromise your integrity at work because everyone else is doing it. Own your mistakes. Do not lie. Do not be a scandal monger, i.e. a gossip. Seek purity of lifestyle and do not buy into the carnal Christian lie. As a Christian, when you read your Bible, don't skip over the parts that tell you how to live. Sometimes, this kind of really goes with the other point, but I wrote it here. Um, sometimes when I talk to the Christians and they don't like this idea that there is a, a, a way of life for a Christian, they'll, they'll, they'll say something like, well, that's Old Testament stuff, not New Testament. And I always go to the same place, and I'm going to go here now, Ephesians 5. You can turn there if you want, but you don't have to. I'm just going to read. This is in the New Testament. Paul writes this. Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children, and walk in love, as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us, a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. But sexual immorality and any impurity of greed should not even be heard of among you, as is proper for the saints. Obscene and foolish talking or crude joking are not suitable, but rather give thanks. For no one recognizes this, that every sexually immoral or impure or greedy person who is an idolater does not have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty arguments, for God's wrath is coming on the disobedient because of these things. Therefore, do not become their partners. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of the light consists of all goodness and righteousness and truth. Test what is pleasing to the Lord. Don't participate in the fruitless works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what is done by them in secret. Everything exposed by the light is made visible. For what makes everything visible is light. Therefore it is said, get up, sleeper, rise up from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Pay careful attention then to how you walk, not as one unwise, but as wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. So don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. And don't get drunk with wine, which is reckless living, but be filled by the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord, giving thanks for everything to, the, to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of the Lord, in the fear of Christ. Friends, there are imperatives in Scripture, and we are called to walk in them. Apply them to your life. Walk worthy of the gospel. Fourth, fourth and finally, remember that Christian ethics must be considered in light of the gospel. Yes, for their Christian, there is an ethical standard. Yes, we are called to walk worthy. Yes, leaders have specific character qualifications. As I've had to say to people in the past who, who, who think that that's legalism, God and Paul in the New Testament doesn't say, hey, if he's a Christian and wants to be a pastor, let him. 
It says these are the qualifications. There is a lifestyle that must be present. We are called to examine ourselves, all of us as Christians, before coming to the Lord's table. But good behavior alone does not make you a Christian. You can never be good enough to get into Christ's church. I can't be good enough to get into Christ's church. You must repent and believe the good news. You must cast yourself on Christ's mercy. What does that mean? Well, because sin entered the world, we are all born dead in sin. We're going to talk about that a lot next week. But we are all born dead in sin. And as we see through the Bible, we see our inability to save ourselves. But God must intervene and send His Son, Jesus, to the earth to walk the life we could not walk, perfectly holy, and be nailed to a cross as a substitute for us. He receives that punishment that you and I deserve. Because it's our nature to sin, and we enjoy, apart from Christ, we enjoy sinning. We enjoy rebelling against Him. And Christ dies as a substitute for all those who will call on Him. And He raises the third day, He raises up from the dead. He comes alive, conquering death, and is at the Father's right hand. And all those who repent, who change, who turn direction away from sin, and, and, and loving themselves to Him, believing this gospel, He has promised to save. Friend, if you leave here this morning, especially if you're a visitor, if you leave here this morning thinking that you are saved from hell and God's righteous wrath by cleaning up your behavior, you have fatally misunderstood me. But in the same note, if you're here and you're a Christian, I don't care how long you've been a member of this church, if you leave here thinking that because you got your ticket punched for heaven, your conduct doesn't matter, you too are not thinking biblically. There is a standard for Christians. From the beginning, God has called us to a moral standing. Adam received instructions. Adam received prohibitions. Adam received uh, instruction on what family conduct looks like. The New Testament reminds us that we are to be stewards, that we are to be found faithful, that we are to be walking worthy. You know, about a year ago, I sat down with a a young lady in our local Pride Alliance, and we talked for about two hours about worldview. And one thing I learned from her is that although she would say there is no standard of morality, she actually did have a standard. She just had a different line in the sand than I would have had. Even she would say, it's not okay to murder someone. Right? C.S. Lewis said, men have argued over whether a man should have one wife or ten wives, but every man has said that a man shouldn't have any woman he wants. When I was in Afghanistan, you know, we'd go on patrols. And if you ever watch, and I didn't go on a lot of patrols, I was mostly in the command center, but I did get to go on a few, and I talked to the guys that would go on patrols, and you know, when you watch a lot of these war movies, they're kicking down metal doors and that kind of stuff. Well, where I was at in Afghanistan, it was like mud huts, right? Like when they opened doors, it was pulling a curtain back. And we'd go into these villages, right? And we'd, whenever we're on patrol, what is the first things that people would do when we'd pull up is the kids would run out. Right, like kids would, would come out to us and stuff, and they always asked for three things. I don't know why it was always these three things. They always wanted an MRE, or they wanted a water bottle, or they wanted pens. I don't know what they did with the pens, but they were always asking us for pens. And early in our, 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 our campaign there, the kids would climb up on the MRAPs, these big, like, souped-up, mine-resistant vehicles that we had. You know, it's got a crew serve weapon on top. Well, they would climb up on the MRAPs, and you can't have kids climbing on the MRAPs, right? Like, one, they could get hurt just climbing on them because those things are, you know, not made for comfort. Um, they could accidentally get into some kind of ordinance or something they're not supposed to have. Or if, you know, God forbid we were to get attacked, it's not great to have kids all over your MRAP while you're getting shot at. And so one of our leaders went to one of the elders of the village and said, hey, man, can you, like, tell the kids not to climb on the MRAPs? 
And this was the elder's response. Well, sir, just hit them. What? Yeah, just hit the kids. Just slap them and they'll go away. I'm an American soldier. I don't hit kids. But that was their standard of morality. So my question to you today is, is there a hard standard? Do you think it's okay in Afghanistan to slap kids, just not here in America? Is there a line? Well, there is a line. Who made that line? God made that line. We are called to go to his word, and we are called to examine where that line is. Where that line is as we interact with children. Where that line is where I interact with, with Kenan. Where that line is with my marriage. Where that line is in this church. Friends, God has given us his word. As my brother said this morning, how firm a foundation. And that's where we go. If you go to God's word and you don't like what it says about marriage, change what you think. If you go to God's Word and you don't like what He has to say about how you interact with a brother you don't like, you've got to change your thinking. God doesn't change His line to you. As Spurgeon once said, we do not change the Bible to fit the culture, but by God's grace, we will change the culture to fit the God's Word. Friends, God has given us the line. He has set the boundary. He is our creator. And in the Christian worldview, God has given us ethics. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for who you are, your unchanging character, because we know that your character is good, and it is better than anything our fallen minds can conceive. And your ethical laws and your, and your boundaries that you have set, they are good because they are from you, and they are for our good. Father, I pray that as a local church, we would hold fast to that line that we would examine your word to find that line and that we would cling to it and we would lash ourselves to it like a sailor on a, on a ship that doesn't want to go overboard. God, may we glorify and honor you by our conduct, all according to what Christ has done in our heart. In Jesus' name, amen.